everyone, it's that guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to that podcast in Hutch. And today I have a special guest in just because he's visiting here and, and uh, it was kind of an impromptu thing, but I think it's really good that we had the opportunity to sit down together. Um, Slade Templeton, and I barely even know where to begin this story um, because he's done so many things. He now lives in Bern, Switzerland, but he's been all over and done all sorts of things. But originally from Hutchinson, and uh, Slade, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. So tell me about kind of life in Hutchinson growing up and how, like a little bit about how you've gone from here to living in Switzerland yeah. and, and you're, you're a musician, you're a music producer, you're an author, uh, you've, you've toured as a DJ. Uh, we've got a lot of things that we can hit on, but just kind of tell me about how life in Hutchinson kind of shaped you in that yeah. way. Well, I, I mean, not just Hutch itself, but a lot, a lot of it has to be for my father. Um, he grew me up on a lot of cool music and um, a lot of Germanic electronic music. And then ironically, I live in the Germanic part of Europe mm -hmm. now, but um, just very eccentric artists. So, I mean, while I was out on the baseball field, you know, and playing sports growing up here in the Sandlot Ball, I would come home and, and grab the guitar and make noises. Um, really be experimental with with noise and you know that was where my heart was i i love sports i love growing up in hutch and doing the kind of standard thing of hey i'm gonna play t-ball play baseball play football you know and I, I still love sports um but you know there, my heart and soul was somewhere else and a lot of that is environment of course mm -hmm. um and it's just something that's it's me and i think that that's something that as i've got older i've seen retrospectively that's just kind of like my purpose um you know here on here on the planet we all look for our purposes and, you know, you get a little bit older and wiser and you start realizing what that is. And uh, it's been with me since day one. Just making noise. I'm noisy. People yeah. know me here and remember <laughs> me. You know, I'm noisy as hell. Uh, so, yeah, I just made a way to make money off that noise. I think it's like the simple summary of how this is. That, that's so. funny. Now, you you went to school in Hutchinson, yep. right? And Hutch so High, music yep. was always a thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the funny story is I went to Wiley Elementary, actually. Okay. Uh, funny story with that though is I hate music class, yeah. and um, I just you know everyone's singing. I found it awkward. Everyone's off key and stuff, and I just it, I I hated it. And then I remember in sixth grade they come to all the schools and they say, you know, your mouth shape will be perfect for playing the flute. This kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I had these huge buck teeth and an overbite, and like before I had braces and stuff. And I mean, they looked at me and they're like, "You're gonna play snare drum." <laughs> you know, I was like really limited on what I could even do because of that. Um, but the funny thing from that is I just, I hated it anyhow. I, I actually was against reading music at that time too. And I, I still don't know how to read music. Um, but it's cool because when I'm in the studio with bands, I have one band that I produce. There are five guys and they all are music uh, professors. They're in Switzerland and they're very highly trained but they still use me as a record producer. And I think the lack thereof with the knowledge of notes and theory and stuff allow me to be a little bit more um, open-minded on where it can go mm -hmm. um, in some aspects. Um, that's why I call myself a, an artist and not so much a musician in a sense. Uh, but yeah, back in grade school, I just, I, I wasn't in a music class. I didn't do music classes in middle school. I didn't do choir or anything. Uh, same with high school. Um, but I, instead I was in a band I'm called Stellar, Stellar Frequency, uh -huh. and I'm sure a lot of the Hutchies will remember that name. Um, back in middle school, and well, late middle school into high school, uh, which we did cool stuff. We played Vans Warped Tour, um, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool in Wichita. 
um, you know, and it's like new metal music, I guess, yeah. you know, back in the Limp Biscuit and Mud Vein days. And like, you know, <laughs> we all remember that corn. Yeah. And yeah. So we were pretty much just kind of a knockoff of that sound. Uh, but that got my feet wet, you know. So how, so you didn't, you didn't read music and you didn't like music class. So, but, but you always like being noisy yeah. and you like making music, um, or not music necessarily, but noise. Noise. Yeah. So, but but for to make to make the transition from like just playing in high school, playing in uh, you know early on, I mean, you moved like you went on to do this as a living, right? Yeah. I mean, the, you we talked a little bit earlier about being discovered, and you yeah. went and DJed yeah. uh, in Europe. So how how does that transition work? So it kind of started in high school. Um, I, I actually got put on probation for truancy, and. A lot of people, you know, when they're skipping school, they're out smoking weed, doing mm -hmm. things. And I was at home making music. And I would lie to my mom and say, I'm sick. I think they were just sick of it at that point. Anyhow, uh, the principals knew something was going on. Mm -hmm. And there's this funny story. This one day, the USD 308 van pulls up to my house. And uh, I was a freshman in high school. And all four principals come out. And they knock on my door. Now, I'm in my robe. And I answer the door. And they, they come in. They're like, why are you not in school? And I said, well, I can show you. I got like really excited. I was yeah. like, come on back with me. And I had this little self-built studio set up, you know, in my house. I was like, this is the song I'm working on, you know, and I show them the music I was doing. And they kind of looked around, they looked at each other and they're like, so you're not like, just, you're, not, you're not smoking weed and not, you know, they expected me to be doing something totally different to be skipping school. Yeah. And I said, no, I just want to make music. And uh, they, they looked at each other and then they decided to let me graduate early. So I guess it would have been my, my junior year. Sorry, not my okay. freshman year. My junior year. And they let me graduate early. And the reason why is I was still carrying an A and B average. Mm -hmm. I would show up to take the test. And then I would actually skip other class and be in the art building or at home making music. And um, I was the first private sculpture class, too, that they put together just for me. Okay. Um, so I was really into 3D arts. And um, that was all I wanted to do. And I think that the, the principal saw that I just was not having fun there anymore. It wasn't where I needed to be for my career. So that pushed me to say, am I going to go to school for sculpture or am I going to go to school for music? And I went to audio school in Seattle. Now I was after talking to my dad and he's like, kind of out of the lesser of the two evils, which one do you maybe have a better career with? Yeah. You know? So at age 17, I had to decide, you know, sculpture or music. And um, I ended up going for music and I was there for about three months. And the stuff I was already doing at home was the stuff that they were going to be teaching us. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize. So, you know, line levels like you have here with your microphones and um, things like mixing or mastering, I was already doing it at home. So the teacher there was kind of laughing too, because I go in the after hours and be mixing my own stuff, mastering my own stuff, you know, working in the studio as something that would have already been done four years later when I'm quitting school. Yeah. And they're God honest with me. They said, you, you're paying $30,000 to go to school here, but you you don't need any of this. You're, you're already doing it. Yeah. yeah. So I talked to my mom and dad and decided to come back to Kansas. Um, so I was only there for about three months in Seattle. Um, I come back and then that's where things started getting really different. So um, my life was kind of like confusing. Um, I knew that I wanted to continue doing music and I didn't know how. And coming from Kansas, I didn't know a scene. I didn't know an industry. I didn't know where I would put my music. Nothing. I just was doing music. And um, then you just, I, you just wanted to make it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I just wanted to make it. And I, so I went back and back then was MySpace. Mm -hmm. And um, oh, God. 
Yeah. yeah. I remember MySpace. MySpace. <laughs> you know, with the HTML script <laughs> that we could put in there and stuff. Um, good old MySpace. And I started an ambient style stuff, um, kind of just droney sounds and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's when this guy called Dean Garcia discovered me. Um, he was actually uh, from London. He was a bass player for Mick Jagger. Uh, he was a bass player for Sinead O'Connor. He was a bass player for the Arrhythmics back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Massive name. I didn't even know who he was. And he hit me up on MySpace and we started talking and uh, we started a project called The Chronologic. And this is when I was 17 years old, 18 at that point. So 18 at that point. And we started long distance sharing music. And back then we didn't have online. So like we had to put on DVD and like mail it off um, through the snail mail to London um, with all the different tracks and stuff because it's too big. It was like 14 gigs of stuff, you know. Um, and you're not moving that over a telephone line. No, right? yeah. no, it's a fax machine or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we, we did that. And um, about a year later, he decided to move me to London. And that was where my first break was. And it felt like a break. You know, it was like, okay, this guy believes in me. Still, when I was moving over there, I didn't know who this guy was. Mm-hmm. You, you didn't have Google in the same sense as we have now. So it's like I, I didn't know who he was. I didn't even know the artists he's worked with or anything. It wasn't until I was living there and his wife was like slowly telling me just in the passing, oh, this one time we were on tour with Mick Jagger and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how are you? Wait, who was on tour with Mick Jagger? Oh, he played bass for Mick Jagger. I'm like, Dean? And Dean's just like in the other room, like doing music for our track, you know? And I'm like, wait, what? And this kind of stories just started spilling out. And I started realizing the people I was around, you know, like these are big names in the industry. Um, so that was my, my first break with a mentor, which was quite cool. Um, then after London though, I, I came back and that's when I started DJing and that's, okay. that's when I was doing like full on dance music, electronic music. And, um, a lot of people knew me back here when I got back, I was still kind of lost on how to get out with that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to do it. And all of a sudden, because of the songs I was making, I had five sold out dates in Canada to tour. And when the days came in, I didn't know how to play them. I was like, do I, cause I come from live music, you know? Yeah. It's like, do I, do I play with a synthesizer? Like, do I do a drum machine? Like, how do I? And my label at the time from Australia said, no, you need to learn to DJ. So I ran over to Wichita's Guitar Center and picked up these really cheap Denon crappy CDJs. <laughs> Not even knowing what I was doing, you know. And I had about two or three months to literally learn to play to a sold out five dates in Canada. Like, that's surreal, right? Yeah. It's not like a band that, like, breaks and then, like, they've already been... The reason why they broke is because they've already been playing as a band for, like, seven years or something, you know? And then all of a sudden, they they sell out shows because they're known for that. Yeah. Instead, it's like my songs were known and then all of a sudden, I was getting booked for these sold-out tours in other countries and I... You had recorded, but you hadn't uh, done this live, Because we were known for the music, but not for the live. So... It's kind of like being a studio band, but no one being in the band, then getting known for their music, and then all of a sudden saying, oh, you need to, you need to take this live. It was very weird. So, um, yeah, so I, I did the tour, and I, it actually was really awesome. But I, I felt very lost still. Um, there was a side of me that it wasn't 100% me, because you push play for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't a turntablist, because I didn't know how to DJ in that way, yeah. you know. And then also, it wasn't a live band. Um so I felt very lost. And then that's when I felt really deep into addiction back here in Kansas. And I would I would just kind of like escape the stage and like the stresses from what happens at the show and the tours and come back here and like unwind, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And like, um, yeah, I felt really heavy into cocaine. And then that led into methamphetamine. 
um, which people here know is just very rampant. And um, yeah, so it was like a, I was I was using music to kind of cope with life, but I was using drugs to cope with music, and that mm -hmm. became the problem. And that's that's the recipe for disaster there. You use something that's a, an external power to cope with the world around you. Mm -hmm. But when that world around you needs therapy of its own, and the, and the medicine that you have that's actually not going to destroy you. Music's yeah. not going to destroy me. But the world that music brought for me, it, I almost felt the need that I need an escape from it. And it's maybe because I was, that, I was still that young noisemaker. So how old were you at this point? Um, 18. Yeah, I was 18 through 20. Okay. And when it kicked off. So did you have this sense of like, you had this thing that you loved and you, you had always found joy out of, and now there was all this pressure of doing it and doing it yeah. well and doing it in front of people. And I mean, did that create that conflict? hundred percent, hundred percent. And, um, the stresses of the tour itself, um, when you're, when you're touring as a DJ, especially you're by yourself and it is lonely. Mm -hmm. You are so lonely. Um, it's hard to keep up with relationships, family, friendships, um, then you start being known in other countries for things that people at home don't even understand. And no offense to like Hutchinson, but you start doing something no one understands. And there's many times I would say, like, I'm a dance producer. And they would say, are you like, like producing ballets? Mm -hmm. You know, no, I'm making dance music. And they're like, oh, like that techno stuff? And it's like, no, actually, it's called Fidget House. You know, like, it's, it's, it's not just techno. It's not just, it's not 1992 anymore. You know, like this kind of you know, thing. It wasn't until like Skrillex and these huge names like made it commercially acceptable in yeah. Kansas. <laughs> you know, so I was, I was before Skrillex by four or five years. Um, so people here just, a lot of them didn't understand. So then I would get into like the rave culture here. And there was like a huge, huge underground thing here of ecstasy use. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was bad. And I mean, I would be doing 20 pills on a weekend and I was living that life here. And then all of a sudden I felt like I found my people. But just because they understood the the music I was doing, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't think I found my people at all. You know, you look back on it and you're like, that wasn't my people. That was just people that enjoyed the music, just like the fans out there. Yeah. And like, it, that's it's just weird. It's weird. And then you have people that want to meet you and, and they, they think they know you, but they, they just know your music. Mm -hmm. um, you have people that like you for all the wrong reasons. Um, you have people that love you for all the wrong reasons. And it's, it's, I'm not made to think that way. And like I would tell people, I'm just a Kansas boy. Yeah. You know, I still say that even Switzerland, you know, you can take the boy out of Kansas, but you can't take the Kansas out of the boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's still how it is. You know, I'm a very down home Kansan. I'm not this New Yorker grown up there and like put into the biggest studios and, you know, or grown up with a family of touring artists. Yeah. I'm not. So it, it was surreal. And that's kind of, I was fighting those demons all the time on the road. And then it ended up that I would always only use at home, never use my touch studio, never use until I was on the road again. And then it became, that's all I did was use. And I would use to make it to the next flight, mm -hmm. you know, use to make it through the next show, use to get back home, use, I mean, I, I would fly from New York to California to New Zealand to Perth, Australia, then back over to the East Coast of Australia and Sydney. And then I would go over to California again and to Europe and then Moscow. And I just, I, I would only know where I was at by the accent or the language mm -hmm. by the end. I would be so high and just not knowing where I was at from the jet lag. I mean, like I'd hear someone speaking Russian. I'm like, oh, I must be in Russia, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, it's a, it's a weird feeling. When you, when you're, 
when you're in that state and you're, you're you you mentioned something about well I'm only I you, it sounded like you kind of set rules right about oh I'm only going to use here first it's at home, and, and I think in some of my conversations with other people who've struggled with addiction they they create the illusion that they have this all under control right nice. because I'm I I've set these rules for myself I only do it here yeah. I only do it under these circumstances and eventually almost universally yeah. what happens is the rules start to fizzle dissolve, out right yeah. yeah. This hundred percent, yeah. And then you're, and then you're, like you said, you're using that all the time. Yeah, exactly. It becomes your life. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I mean, it's a nice segue into the topic of usage because I mean, here in Hutchinson, I mean, you know, I've kept up a bit over the years from being away. I've been gone for almost a decade now, um, but it's just gotten worse. And uh, I see, I've, I've lost so many friends here. I mean. My wife, that's German, has never lost anyone. She had, she doesn't, she knows one person that died back in high school because her, of a car wreck or something. Mm-hmm. You know, I know, like, I mean, all of us, like thirty or forty people. You know, and like people I went to high school, people I was on sports with, people I was in the music industry with, like all this. It's it's nonstop suicides, nonstop addiction, nonstop uh, car wrecks because they're high. I mean, like, this is this is not normal. Yeah, and um. That's that's where it was really weird for me when I land in Switzerland and you see how they treat drugs there because it's it's exactly opposite of here. Well, let's talk about that a little yeah. bit because I think that 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 comes up in conversation a lot. Uh, what what is the what are some of the big differences between the way we approach addiction and drug use in America versus um, much of Europe and, and in particular Switzerland? Yeah. So the biggest thing is you can't fight it. You cannot fight addiction. You can't fight the people that are going to choose to use and you can't change them mm-hmm. in that way. So instead of trying to change all this, Switzerland saw back in the 90s that they need to treat it and to let them, but in a controlled environment, decriminalize. And they had such a problem in, in Zurich back in the late 80s that they had a place called Needle Park. Mm-hmm. Um People were dying on the on the doorstep of the Bundesrat, which is the Capitol building. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally, like people just dying from heroin overdoses in the in the eighties and nineties. And um, they started realizing that we have a we have a real problem here. And they were doing that thing that America does at the time. They were really like, okay, put them in prison. You know, that'll change their mind. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, that'll teach them. That'll right? teach them. Go put them in a caged area where they're already feeling caged enough by society. And that's the problem too: is addiction. You fall into it because you feel cornered. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt cornered on the road. I felt cornered in what I was doing with my music. People that are caged rats are going to use. Um, they even did a study on that. I'm sure you've heard about this. They did a TED talk on this, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. I'll just say it real fast so the people listening, but um, they had rats that they they would feed uh, pretty much an addiction to each day, and then they had the option to use, but he was in a very small cage. Then mm-hmm. they had another rat that had a full park, a beautiful place that he could play and stuff, and gave him the same drug option each day, and he chose not to do it. Yeah, He had options, you yeah. see. and um, Yeah, if you provide... A good existence for the rat. The rat doesn't use the cocaine water yeah. that, on that experiment. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So the interesting thing that Switzerland is, they said we can't fight it. So let's not join it, but you know, let's let's help this along. That they're using clean needles. Mm-hmm. They're not dying from the wrong stuff. Um, we're going to give them uh, pharmaceutical grade at the certain amount. So people that do want to wean off have that option. We're going to give them a place to use that's going to be watched over by cops, nurses, and law enforcement um, to allow them to do this in certain areas off the street so other people aren't seeing it. 
And um, then on top of that, they were able to cut down uh, theft. This, mm-hmm. is the, this is the biggest number. 98% theft went down. Really? 98%. And the reason why is because people were getting a high-grade medical at any at any time they needed it as a disposal. And, and I think one of the things we forget about in addiction is that uh, to people in addiction, the drug is as important as food or water. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So they're not going to live without it. No. And when you're going black market, how are you going to get it? Yeah. Right. You're going to break into that house next door. You're going to go grab the stuff in there. You're going to figure out a way to go make it and supply that. The government's not going to give you that. Yeah. So that's what you're going to do. So what they did is they de- decriminalized it to the point that people didn't need to do use black market. So there was not a need for drugs that were being sold by the underground. There was not a need for people... Um, to do too much and to die from bad and dirty stuff. Mm-hmm. They did a study in Switzerland too that the grade of heroin that was on the street was only 15 to 20% heroin. So the, all the rest was cut. Yeah. It was all bad stuff. And now we're seeing that with fentanyl here. Yeah. And, um, and, I, when, and that's killing a lot of people. It's killing people. Yeah. They just had that, that report come out in the Hutch News. I just did that interview with the Hutch News a couple of days ago and they, they told me 1.28 people per day. Yeah. First three weeks of October, I think it was. I mean, there's 27 people in the first three weeks. Like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, this is the, the level that they had that problem in Switzerland when they had to make a decision to change. And that's the part that I'm so fearful for here is the political stature and the way that things are here. It's going to take so much red tape to get through to even make that change that I don't know how it can happen, but it needs to. And it's going to save lives clear across the country. Yeah. And that's that. That's the first step is it needs to be looked at as we cannot fight it. So let's figure out how to treat it. And once the government was able to see that, they, they're not going to lose out money. They're not the ones running the mafia. They're not the ones. <laughs> I mean, there's not a theory in the world that's saying they're the ones with the Mexican cartel. They're the ones providing that drug. They're not. But instead of trying to push them into a corner even further and putting them in a prison system and overloading the prisons, they need to start seeing that we need to treat the, the addicts themselves, give them, provide them a, a use place that will keep them alive, provide them needles that are clean enough to keep them alive, keep hep C down, keep AIDS down, mm-hmm. and provide them with a certain amount that's not going to overdose them. And also just make sure that they know that they have a chance to sober up. Yeah. Well, and you're kind of a testament to that, that, that one of the things we always talk about in this is that people who are in addiction, they don't stay in addiction forever. Like yeah. Actually, most of the people, if we can keep them alive, yeah. move away from addiction, yeah. get into recovery, and they get better and they end up being fully involved and engaged members of yeah. society doing all yeah. the things that we want them to do. Yeah. Um, but we take this one snapshot in a person's life. Right. And we say, oh, you're an addict or whatever. And you're making these choices. And we like kind of pigeonhole that person yeah. forever when the truth is that's just a snapshot it's just one period in a person's yeah. life right and, and you just you throw them against the wall right then yeah you see that they're there and then you're just like boom shut the door yeah like what what does that do for the person that doesn't do anything to help them and and the thing is then you got society around you telling it that that's the lifestyle that's the way it has to go and i think that's where the difference is with switzerland too people know that's not where it has to go mm-hmm. they they know that they can then go to an official place where police are standing right next to you, allowing you to use, and you're not needing to go down to Joe Bob down the street and buy some dope they made in his bathtub, you know? Um, that changes everything. Yeah. That changes everything. That changes clear from the point of Joe Bob down the street, too, because he probably won't need to make it anymore. So he can just go use himself, too, and then he doesn't need to worry about it. He can go carry a job even as he tapers off from yeah. his addiction. Yeah. So that's where things need to change. And, um, you know, 
I just, I wish we could see that here. But I mean, once again, it goes to that red tape. We're a country here that's very big. We're a community here that is only part, small part of the whole big picture, yeah. you know. But it, and we know, have to change thinking. I mean, we're, we're, we, we had a lot of years of indoctrination around that drug use is a choice and you can just say no, yeah. right? Yeah. And we built a whole marketing platform around that. Yeah. And there's now the research that's come out now and more, more a deeper understanding of brain chemistry and trauma and addiction and all the things yeah. that play into that. And we're just now beginning to understand that it's, it's much more than you made a bad choice today. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I mean, and a lot of people too saw it as a disease um, over the years. And I mean, it's, People's mentality in that way can be very psychological. It can also be biological or a combination of both. Um, but to just see it as it is a cancer and you're going to get it and then you have it, I still think that that's wrong too. I don't think that that's it. Um, we have to treat it almost like a cancer that is always curable and not a cancer you're going to die from. And like we got taught, I even got taught this here in, in my rehab facilities um, that you know you have three outcomes of institution, prison, or death. Mm -hmm. And with my case in my addiction, I saw all three at once, you know, um, on April 8, 2013, I, I did try to kill myself right in front of my whole family. And I was high on meth for five days. Didn't even know where I was at. Um, I was that caged rat. I didn't know where, where to go. Um, my only way out was just to end it. I'm done. And, uh, by the saving of a miracle, I didn't die that day. Um, I did even, you know, I have marks all over my body. I have scars everywhere. And, um, you know, I would have been in another statistic <laughs> and, you know, I, I made it by a miracle. And that's my purpose here is to try and help others know that there is a way out. And it doesn't mean that you have to move out of the country either. You know, just because I did, it did make it easier in my case, but um, it's as easy as just shutting off your phone, changing your number, cutting those ties, uh, even just moving the city over, you know, not looking for the same, you know, routine, the same treadmill and, and looking for that support system within yourself um, to make things change. And, um, you know, to, if you start seeing it as I need to treat the caged rat mm -hmm. in me, that makes things look totally different. Then I need to conform to society. It's telling me I need to be sober. That sounds horrible. Yeah. If you say I need to conform to society, it tells me to be sober. You're caging yourself more. Mm -hmm. That's more people around you just pointing the finger saying this is how you need to be. You need to say, I am a caged rat. Then does that mean from my post-traumatic stress because I was raped as a kid? Does that mean um, because of the school that bullied me? Is that because I can't get a job right now? Is that because I have no money? Is that because I don't trust society? Is that there's a plethora of things here. You, you can't sit there and say, I can change that. But what you can change is the fact that you feel like a caged animal. You need to find that green rolling prairie to yourself. You need to find how to get out of that cage. And uh, that's where the hard part is. But once you can see where break down those barriers, um, you know, the possibilities are endless. So you, when this happened, I mean, you had, this was in 2013. Yeah. And, uh, and this is a very dramatic and, and kind of a concrete moment. Right? Yeah. And, um, and, and did you, you ended up in, did you, you ended up institutionalized? Exactly. That, right? Yeah. So right after I was in the hospital, like I said, hospital institution death. Yeah. Um, first off, I, I stopped breathing on the way to the emergency room. So I was clinically dead at one point and I started going that way. Um, I started to code. They resuscitated me, did the surgery. Um, they found I did uh, clip one of my jugular veins. And luckily the one doctor, Dr. Holcomb, um, he happened to be here to save my life that day. He was on vacation prior, right before it, I was told. And uh, he was a um, military medical specialist. Mm. So he knew exactly how and to handle field, staff. Like a field surgeon, yeah. right? Yeah. So he knew the best doctor you could possibly have for that. 
Uh, he just happened to be here, and he he quote unquote told me you are the luckiest bastard I've ever met. This is someone who's been on the war zone, you know. This is someone who's like seen the worst, and he straight told me that. Um, you know, I didn't take that for granted. So right after that, though, then they it was the weirdest thing. I was in my hospital room, and once I was recovered, a few days later, like they I still had the stitches and stuff. Um, they came in and slowly started removing stuff from my room. <laughs> so uh. this sounds, yeah. So this is really weird. I was just happy to be alive at this point. Yeah. And um, they slowly came in. All of a sudden, the phone was off the wall. All of a sudden, like, the TV was moved and, like, the cables were pulled off the TV. And then all of a sudden, there's two cops outside my door in the Hosh Hospital. And I was like, what the hell is going well, on? You were on suicide watch, right? They yeah, exactly. But I didn't away. even know this at the yeah. time. <laughs> so, I mean, I thought I was just, hey, I survived. This is crazy. I should have never done that. I'm, I'm ready to be sober now. But what happened was they, 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 yeah, they put me on suicide watch and then they moved me to the fourth floor of the hospital. And then I was there for a week and then they were like, okay, now you're court appointed that you have to go to uh, Larnan mm -hmm. to the state hospital in the mental ward, the high security unit. And um, so I ended up being there for over a month. And uh, that's the surreal thing. At this point, I wasn't high. I was actually my, my normal self, you know, like um, I, I, I wasn't hallucinating. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, and then I was around some seriously ill people too. And, um, I started realizing at that point though, like I have just as much mental issues and demons of myself that led me there that these people do, you know, and like, how can I start saying that I'm something different than them? And then while I was in there, I became friends with a lot of these patients. And, um, that's where a lot of inspiration for, for my book, truth of the shadows came from was my time in the mental ward. Um, you know, living that is just surreal. I kind of felt like Brad Pitt and 12 monkeys, mm -hmm. you know, that, yeah. the scene is like, I'm not crazy. They yeah. are like this kind of thing. But that's, that's the thing. I, I, I have my own demons. It's not about them being and me not. And like, that's not how it is. We all have our demons. Um, it was a real eye-opening experience to be in there with them and getting to know them and knowing their story yeah. and, uh, knowing what, took them to become what they are. Some of them had a lot of trauma from childhood. Some of them had um, really chemical, biological problems with the brain. Um, some of them were there for the same reason as me. I met like five other people. They're like, I was so high last week and now I'm here in this weird place. I don't know how I got here. You know, it's, it's surreal. So it, it, did it take a minute of adjustment to that? Like, I mean, because I think we, we do always tend to think of ourselves as, well, we're, we're, we're different than people that are in a mental institution. We're different than people that are in a mental ward. And uh, to, and even in the face of being there, right, there's still that natural resistance that says, oh, th there's still some distinction between us, yeah. right? So at some point in this, you, you, you realize, well, you become maybe empathetic to everybody that's in yeah. there. Well, tell me about how that turned into this this book, Truth and the Truth of the Shadows. Yeah, so it's really interesting because the the patients in here are all based on my experiences through the time in the mental ward, and um, one of the main characters, Matthew, he actually um, he was based on someone I used to hang with here, and ironically, he showed up in the mental ward at the same time I was there. I hadn't seen him for seven or eight months, um, and he's he's sadly not with us anymore. Um, so he's, he's a, a character in here too. Um, there's another character in here too. Um, I, I called her Lady Barcelona as a nickname for a very long story reason that I met there. Um, but she's this young girl and she also is not any, any longer with us. Um, she's, uh, one of the characters in this book. Um, I based it into a fictional realm, but also to show a lot of, um, altering and changing our view on how we see mental illness. Mm. And the interesting thing is to write a psychological horror 
that makes you look inward more than outward. Yeah. A lot of people are using, uh, you know, a lot of um, external influence to be scared of. Uh, of course, there's ghosts and stuff, you know, it's a, it's a horror, but uh, it's not, it's not something relying on like boogeyman down the street. Yeah. It's relying on yourself and your own inner turmoil. And what the main doctor that thinks he has everything put together, he has some of the darkest shadows. He has some of the darkest, deepest corners of, of his own mind that ends up representing throughout the book that he's no different than the patients and he's the one taking care of him. And um, that's, that's where that veil needs to be lifted. That's the part that needs to change in society as a whole. It doesn't even just go to psych psychology. Mm -hmm. um, this can go to even just health. I mean, like <laughs> people, oh my God, you have AIDS. Oh my God, are you homosexual? Oh my God, like these kind of mentalities, like that's, there's no, there's no difference, okay? You can't start pointing fingers. You can't start blaming people for decisions that they're making in life like that. Even addicts, you can't start looking at them and saying, oh my God, this person's an addict. This isn't it. You have an addiction inside of all of us, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you yours might be potato chips. Yeah. You know, I'm not sitting there talking shit on you, loving your sour cream and you know potato chips. This is this is something we need to look at. We need to look inward before we start looking outward. You know. Do you think we have? I mean, this is an interesting point to me. Do you think that part of the reason we're so externally focused and pointing at other people and saying, "Oh, th these people are different, weird, blah blah blah, whatever." Um, is because that's much more comfortable than looking internally and saying Absolutely. these are the issues with me that I have to identify. Absolutely, we all have a Pandora box. Yeah, and I mean we don't. Always... And it's uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Like once you start opening that up, and you're like, oh, like you know every bad yeah. thing about yourself, right? Yeah. If you if you really look at it, absolutely. And yeah. I, I went through this actually because after my suicide attempt and everything I've gone through, um, you know, I've been with a trauma specialist weekly for three years. <laughs> I mean, um, talk about opening Pandora's box. Yeah, that's um, a lot of uh, introspection. Really. A lot of dirt in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it goes way back. And I, I think, honestly, everyone, I mean, all the psychologists out there will thank me because I, I believe that everyone does need to see one. And it's not because everyone is crazy, but I think it's the fact that everyone has so much stuff built in just as humans uh -huh. in this day and age that we have to find a way to kind of soothe that or work through it. I mean, you can spend a week just watching the news and you're going to be fucked up. Oh, yeah. sorry. Can we not say it? We, you're gonna be yeah no, it's okay. e for everyone but we also can edit out <laughs> go ahead and edit too. that one out you can edit that one out um but yeah so i mean you know you're gonna be messed up if you're sitting here watching just the news especially here in america the way that the media feeds us what we choose to do um it, it is scary you know switzerland's not like that and i come back over here and it's like i mean just out of the airplane at the airport and you start seeing like all the politics and everything going on and you start getting just really scared almost and like oh my god i need to think this way i need to feel this way should i feel this way and like that needs to be worked through, you know? Can we talk about this a little bit? Because we, we did a little bit before, but you said in Switzerland, there are extreme and fringe elements, right? But yeah. we talked a little bit about how it's different. And you just mentioned there that, like, we might talk about these things, but you don't feel that sense of, like, overwhelming fear and terror. No. Just because there's this fringe yeah. element there. Right? They don't use fear as much there is a mechanism to control the masses at all. Um, that's something that's very much over here. Yeah. Uh, we've been like that since day one, really. Even I look back to the fact that I'm a, in Europe as American. We're the only country that tax our people around the world. I'm an American citizen. I still have a file for tax here because they put the fear into people in the Civil War not to leave the country. And how they did that is they said, we'll tax you no matter where you're at. Mm. And they still to this day have held that law up. So that already is a fear mechanism back to the Civil War, you know, and that's how our government looks at it. The thing with Switzerland is they have a huge array of parties. They have 
it's not black or white. It's not just Democrat, Republican. Yeah. It is a huge array. And the thing is, you have very, very far rights and you have very, very far lefts and the mentalities are extremist and they are cut dry posters on the wall with all white sheep kicking a black sheep out saying gegen Auslander, which is German for get out immigrants. Mm-hmm. And they straight up say it. Yeah. I mean, it's straight like Nazi culture there on the far right. But they have so many other parties within the middle to the left to, you know, comes full circle. It kind of moderates. That yes. A bit, and right? not one person ever controls the seat. Yeah. So there's never one party making all the decisions. Yeah. Instead, what they do is they put it up to the whole panel of different parties. And then all the people at the parliament then put it back to the people to vote. And I mean, that's just a no brainer. That works. That makes society not fearful. No. I mean, of course, the propaganda for the SVP. If you're fearful of immigrants, which I have dealt with as an immigrant there yeah. a lot, um, I've felt this full on. I've had people literally tell me that I'm just a tourist because I live there, uh-huh. you know, because I'm not from there. Um, I've dealt with this far right mentality. But um, the thing is, is, is you, you realize that you don't have a fear so much. You're kind of like, yeah, okay, I'm scared of immigrants. So you might believe in that, right? That's fear-based. But they're not putting that fear into you. You're not walking down the street seeing that and, and you're a left person going... Oh, now I'm scared to think the way I think. No. I mean, even in that extreme. So they don't put a gun to your head. Here they literally do sometimes put a gun yeah. to your head. So um this is this is the part that I think um on a political level too with America, it works in some ways because fear rise our country um as far as like getting people to join the military, you know, things like that to believe in their country. That's understandable. And I'm I'm not ever against that. That's just how our, our democracy is made. But um to start using it to keep people uh, from doing good things. That's where the line needs to get drawn, you know, yeah. making good decisions. That's that's not what fear should be used or for. Or you know? try to create a dichotomy, right? That mm-hmm. says it's either this way, you're either this way or this way without recognizing the nuance exactly. in between there. That you can have some concerns about one topic and maybe not be concerned about another topic and maybe there's room for discussion and all of that, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So... I want to talk a little bit more about like even even just like some basic life in Switzerland. Like what are I always find it fascinating, like even even down to like food and culture and music and yeah. housing. Like what are some of the like biggest differences between here and, and Switzerland? Uh, the biggest difference is just how cut dry people are. They just very straightforward. Straightforward. Right? I mean, my wife's German. And trust me, like I every day see this, you know, and I'm still not used to it. I've been over there for 10 years now. And it's like. The way she just tells you how it is, yeah. you know, and her whole family being from Germany just tell you how it is. I'm still not used to that over here. You know, growing up in America, we're very like, we've been taught, and it's out of fear, actually. It's out of fear of the, how the other person is going to respond. We're taught to be very kind of beat around the bush, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more intellectual around the outside on how we want to present what we want to say. Um, Germans just tell you how it is. And same with Switzerland. They, they will tell you, yeah, that's a very dumb idea, I think. And people would discuss this at the table, but no one walks away hating the other person, mm-hmm. you know, because they're used to that. They're like, oh, that's his idea and that's my idea. And my wife even says that, like, that's my idea and that's your idea. You know, that's hard to even get in the American mentality of like, no, because here we feel that person has to have the same idea as me. Yeah. And that's where things go wrong. You know, it's forcing the other to believe what I believe. So Switzerland's very good about... Um, you know, explain that this is how they feel. Yeah. And you're not going to change my mind. And uh, that's how it's going to be. And we'll still eat dinner together and have fun and be best friends. That's a really cool thing. 
Um, along with that, the Switzerland, uh, Switzerland uh, way of life is very healthy, like food even. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have as many options. You don't have many options at all, actually. So I, when we come here, we come here a lot for the food, too. Yeah. I, I crave it. You know, I haven't been here for six years, and the only thing I could think about was, like, Mexican food and uh, hamburgers and, like, all these things. All that, the food, right? Yeah, yeah, and all the food. And it's amazing. I love that about America. But, um, you know, Switzerland's very healthy. They walk everywhere. They look like they're about to bust out a hike at any time, like they have book bags on, like they're about to just go up the mountains at any time. It's really funny. Um, and then they, their food choice, they cook at home a lot. Uh, they cook a lot of very good food uh, that's very wholesome. And the funny thing is it's, it's opposite of here. It's cheaper there to cook from home, and it's extremely expensive to eat out. And here you can get a meal for like 8 bucks at a drive through you know, that if you try to make the same thing at home, it costs like 20 You know, it's opposite the way that the culture is there. Um, in that way. So yeah, the food, food culture is very different too. And then of course the language, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they all speak English a little bit, but most of it's German where I'm at. Mostly so, German. Yeah. Okay. So, so I speak German now, which you, is pretty cool. You speak German. Yeah. 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 I was, I was, I was going to wonder about that because yeah. you've lived there long enough. Yeah. You probably had to adapt to that. Yeah. And I got a 18 uh, month old daughter now. So I was like, okay, German wife, German household, uh, German country. I'm not going to be that guy, you know? And I've met some other Americans there that have been there for 20 years and they still haven't learned the language, you know? They still have that mentality. Like, I don't need to know it. You know, they all speak English yeah. to me, but I was like, nah, I need to, you know, assimilate. It's so prob- probably better for you to be able to communicate with yeah they the respect native it. language right yeah they respect it a lot and especially when i'm at the bank or the medical facilities uh, um talking to the doctor in german or at least trying even um then you know they're very happy to see that they, they still might drop into their english to help you to help <laughs> you know? out yeah, yeah. <laughs> or at least there's at least some navigation right you can be part german and then transition to english yeah yeah yeah, that, yeah. i can see where that would be that would be challenging so you're in town now visiting family. Yeah. Um, and you said it's been about, what, six years since you've been back? Yeah. Is that it's right? It's been almost six years. Yeah. Because it's pre-COVID first off. And that, okay. of course, you know, the whole world turned upside down for travel. Um, and then also I've just been very busy and stuff. I did come to Kansas City for two days to see my sister up there uh, in 2020, right before everything kicked off, mm-hmm. like in January 2020 on the way to Los Angeles. Okay. Um, so I was I was on business meetings in Los Angeles, so I had to come through, but I didn't come to Hutch. So this was like really weird to me. It was even more weird because the book, because I talk about a lot of things in Hutch, uh-huh. like St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Um, I actually mentioned the book. And before when I drive through the city, I had my memories, but now I like have my memories plus what's been put in the book. And I'm like driving around like, Oh, so the books are triggering memories yeah. that you remembered, then the memories were in the book because exactly. you remembered them, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And I think a lot of people that knew me or know Hutch and know, they're, they're going to see a lot of the the things I mentioned in here. Um, you know, the just kind of way that the main character, Joseph, his memories, how they come come about sounds very Hutchy. Yeah. <laughs> well, give me, give me like a, like kind of the synopsis of the, the, the plot line of the book. Yeah. So, I mean, the main thing, like I told you, is just to break down those barriers of the mental illness thing. But that's like the philosophy behind mm-hmm. it, so to speak. Um, but yeah, you follow the, the life of Joseph Hoffman, which is a very known doctor, very good doctor from Germany originally. Um, but he moved to America about 25 years earlier and is working as the lead psychiatrist in Cottage Grove, Oregon. So he's a German that is now living in America. Um, he himself has gone through a lot. Um, he's had a lot of dark memories and a lot of that comes out through the book. Um, his memories though, end up becoming very consuming. 
Um, someone that with PTSD like I had, I think that's a lot of autobiography feeling of knowing what it's like to have memories consume you. Um, so I was able to kind of put that in there really well with the main character. Um, and then he himself just is uh, working at the hospital with these other patients that are uh, all dealing with their own stories. But then you start to realize that all the stories are aligning into one. Mm -hmm. And there's something that's much darker at the hospital than what he knows at the beginning. And it becomes in this like a dark entity. Um, this doesn't mean just like a ghost down the hall, mm -hmm. but um, something way more psychological than that. Uh, so you, you, when you read the book, the cool thing is, is I wrote the book um, going forward. So you read his uh, present time moving forward, but his memories are actually from the furthest back to present. So when it gets to the climactic part of the book, they meet up. Mm. So those most recent memories with the current time meet up to reflect in something that he needs to process to change what's happening at the hospital through himself. So um, the whole world spins upside down at that point. Not literally but <laughs> metaphorically yeah, yeah. um and yeah it's just to to show how he can rid the evil from around him and the patients so the cool thing about it is it's it's, it's as um horror as it is realistic uh some people have called it folk horror because there's some folklore in it that i really pull from uh, and then some people have called it psychological thriller psychological horror um, people have not been able to pinpoint exactly where it's at on that spectrum, which is really cool yeah. um, to me. Uh, but it's cool because I had even uh, the director from Friday the 13th and uh, from um, sometimes they come back from uh, Stephen King. Uh, he actually wants the script of it. Uh, so he, he would love to direct a movie with that. Um, but he said he needs to see that script. So that was really exciting. Um, so that can happen. And I've also been meeting with another director from from Hollywood. Uh, about some other stuff too for it becoming a film uh but yeah so we'll see what happens so there's a chance this might there's be a, a big movie, chance yeah right? there's yeah. a big chance yeah it's been talked about by a few people and if you read the book you kind of see why because it's i mean i come from the entertainment industry mm -hmm. as a musician and i play a lot of horror games and stuff and when i wrote the book i really you can feel this visual world there uh-huh and it's not so just okay, amazing literature or something like that's not someone's not going to read the book and go wow this is a ground poe material you know like I'm not. It's not going to become a literary classic. <laughs> no, it's not going to be a literary classic. But, but, but you did do, you talked to me earlier about you did some like unusual things with this. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So at the end of the book, you see a login for the website, College Grove Hospital website, um, that actually allows you to log in as the doctor from the book. And you get to see the electronic medical records. So there's things you read or heard about in the book, uh, the patient's files, you get to see videos of them in their rooms. You get to hear audio tape files that are mentioned in the book. You also get to hear music and stuff that's from the book. And then also uh, the cool thing is it kind of hints at where the sequel would go. Mm. Um, along with that, is we have the audio book coming out in December, uh, which I did a full score with. So it's actually like an audio play, audio drama um, with sound effects and a narrator that's just fantastic from London. Um, he, he did all the voices, which is crazy. It's like an audio play with one guy that did all the voices. That's awesome. which, yeah. And he's fantastic. So um, yeah, so I mean that that's coming out in December is a plan. Uh, we were trying to do it for Halloween, but it's just like why put your your audiobook up against three thousand other horror yeah audiobooks on Halloween? Being, <laughs> yeah. And the algorithms promoting all of them exactly right, now, right. Yeah, so we just do a Christmas release. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, I love the multimedia approach and everything I do, and that's kind of where this book was. The book itself took like twelve people to make it a reality, uh, you know, which is also unique for a book. Um, usually, you know, you have the author and they will do, you know like maybe some proofing with someone else, an editor, constant development, and there it is. Uh, 
in my world, because I'm not necessarily an author by trade, uh, I use people that help with the content development, people that help with the proofing, the editing, sure, just as any author does. But I also got a lot of the art uh, idea concepts from my wife. She's amazing with fiction ideas. Mm. Uh, so some of the uh, concepts would come from her and then I would put it into my broken, messed up world of experience and things that I've gone through. And I would make it into like a fiction story section. Um, and then an another part of it is the cover art is working with a special person. Uh, she's amazing named Miss Natmack. Um, she does a uh, lot of huge books. Um, so she she was willing to work with me being a no-name author, which is cool. And then inside our art developer that we work with with my band called Crying Vessel, um, named, uh, uh, um, uh, sorry, uh, and then the illustrations inside though uh, will be um, something that you really want to look at because they're hand drawn by um, uh, sorry just one second you're good <laughs> too many names like going through my yeah, head right now like, yeah, yeah time, so you haven't yeah. cut that um, one two three and yeah so anyhow and the cool thing is I work with a Venezuelan artist that works with my band Crying Vessel and he does the illustrations in the book which is amazing he's kind of the art visual guy that we work with for music videos with Crying Vessel um, and also inside the book. So with his world of the visual aspect, with my world is just the paper and pen pretty much, mm -hmm. my wife with some of the ideas on the fiction, and then also all the things um, with the multimedia aspect of getting like a whole web team involved and a video shooter for doing the, uh, you know, hospital rooms. Yeah. It all came together. So it's really cool. So it seems like, I mean, you and I talked earlier that this book is really a, kind of a hobby and a passion, but it sounds like it pulled all these different parts of your life in absolutely, one yeah. place, right? Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's a cool thing. It's, it's as much an autobiography as it is um, a, a horror book. <laughs> so, I mean, or my story is just that dark, but I don't think that's it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's cool. You know, it's cool. But yeah, I was just a pen and paper by the end. Yeah. So. But it's cool. I mean, it definitely is nice to see different parts of your life and different people that have contact with different parts of your life kind of all blending together in one True. project, right? True. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, if people are involved with the music side, the film side, everything, I mean, it's cool. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I never thought about that. Very yeah, poetic. I like, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Very poetic. So you're you're here now, and then you'll you'll go back home. Well, yeah. tell me about life now. I mean, we've we've covered a lot of ground and uh, and a lot of things that you do, but you're married now. Yeah. You have a 18-month-old? Yep. Right? It's yep. only kid? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Ava Raven. <laughs> Ava Raven? Yeah. It's a very cool name. Well, thank you. So, like, you grew up in Hutch. You're now in Switzerland. You're yep. raising a family of your own. You still have family here. Like, how do you bring this full circle then? Like, how, how do you, um, I mean, I think most fathers, no matter what the background they look, and they, they say, I'd like to help my kids avoid some of the, yeah. the pitfalls or some of the stumbling blocks that I hit. Yeah. So how, I guess, I mean, tell me about life now and life going forward. And you, you've got your hand in all these different things. But, I mean, what's what's on the horizon, I guess? Yeah. So, I mean, to say that, too, is like something I've thought about a lot, of course. Like you say, you have a, a kid and all of a sudden your world changes as mm -hmm. far as like looking out for them. It's not about you anymore. You know, this kind of thing. And like I messed up so many times, like I don't want them to make the same mistakes. The good thing is in Switzerland, it doesn't happen as much here as it does here. Uh, that won't be as complicated, I think, but what's complicated is kind of removing myself from thinking that it's possible. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I still think that she can run out there and just grab meth down the street and like, just go mess up her life. Of course she could find it if she wanted to, but I mean, it's, it, that's one way it's different. Um, that's not going to be there as much, but, uh, the thing is the security there is just very good for her, um, both on the healthcare system. 
it's more of a socialist healthcare system, um, you know, so she will not have to pay an arm and a leg. Uh, when we had the baby, it was free. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have to, you know, which everyone here is like, what? That, that cost me $8,000. You didn't get the, the bill from the hospital. <laughs> no. So congratulations. You have a baby on the backside. It's like, here's a detailed bill. Yeah, exactly, man. Pay, right? Yeah. It's, it's just totally different in that way. Um, just the, the lifestyle is healthy and stuff too. But the thing is with me is I, I always battle this thing of, I still want her to have some of her American culture in her. Um, you know, I want her to see it here. And that's why we're here already with her a year and a half old. Uh, to meet the family, see the culture, do this and like continue on doing this um, from now, you know, until she's my age, you know, and onward and like hopefully come back here, even if she wants to go to school here, things like this, um, you know, but all we can do is just be the best parents we can and tr- really get her to educate herself on on what's what she feels is the right decision in those moments. And um, it's it's like with my wife, the things I've told her that I've done here. She can't even believe. And like I talked to my other friends there too. And just like one little story that we even talk about here, you know, like this kind of stuff. And they're like, you're kidding me. Eh? That's like something from a movie or something. It's like, no, that's just America, you know? Yeah. And so it's just, you know, that's the problem here is it's, there's always, you know, there's this nuance, I guess is the way to put it, a nuance of, I want her to be more American because I'm American. And like, I want her to taste of how I grew up. But it's like, at the same time, she's so safe here. And like, everything's good here. And like, you know, so she's just going to have to grow on her own and decide what she wants to do, you know? And, uh, and she'll have the advantage of seeing both, kind of both perspectives yeah. in both worlds, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, it's, it, there's a, there comes a point, it gets very hard to just make sure that you aren't putting too much of yourself in the decisions for your child mm-hmm. and too much of your past and your history into how you view the child's going to react, you know? And I know that that's going to be a battle with me from now until doomsday because i have so much history you know and i mean my wife doesn't see the worst and everything when i've already been through the worst a lot of it so you know my mind goes there a lot so that's the biggest battle i think is me with being a new father you know yeah that's a tricky thing though is that that projection the projecting of your own fears right exactly that there's no real basis Exactly. And expecting that in your children. But yeah. you, it, but it kind of goes to what you're talking about the book. Like yeah. when you look inward, you know, all the, you know, all the mistakes, you yeah. know, all the bad things, you know, all the bad thoughts yeah. and you start to worry. Like exactly. That, and, and, and it can become a projection uh, that may or may not yeah. need to actually be realized. Yeah, all, exactly. Right? I mean, I'm definitely the helicopter dad. Yeah. You know, I'm there already, but you know, a lot of that's uncalled for. <laughs> so, yeah. I think that's pretty normal though, right? Like, yeah. I mean, everyone's telling us that. Like me and my wife, like, it's your first kid. Wait until you have three or four. You won't care what they're doing. You three but, or four when you like watch them, like they're literally sticking paper clips in the outlet. And you're like, ah, I'm sure that's going to yeah, be okay. It's never happened before. So whatever. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's just a daily thing, you know, and just learning who I am as a father now. Yeah. You know, and it's an interesting new thing and uh, learning balance. Yeah, I've been over, always an overworker, working 15 hours a day. Like I said, we all have addiction. I'm sober now, but I sure as hell have a work addiction. Yeah, um, you know that's why there's a book in front of us right now. You know, because uh, there's, there's always another project, right? There's <laughs> yeah. always another thing that can be done. Yeah, yeah, but that baby, she lined me straight. You know, that's and now good. it's like you know I, I'm with her three days in the afternoon. I'm I'm with her on the weekends. I'm, you know, it really it grounded me. Yeah, you know, and it's just really poetic to be back here with her. I'm seeing all this and it's extremely poetic to be back here talking with you, for instance, right now on the Hutch News a couple of days ago. Um, thanks to Jesse bringing me in to do all this, uh, just to be able to share what I've been through 
and um, leaving, you know, leaving this country a broken mess and coming back just like, wow, I got a kid now. I got a book now. I got three albums with Crying Vessel. I've been touring the world again, sober. Um, I'm running a multi-platinum studio in Switzerland. Uh, you know, just, I, I haven't thought about any of it. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I have not thought about any of it until literally just now when I was talking to you. Um, I've done a lot of shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to put it in perspective, right? Yeah. When you, when you really think about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not one of those guys that like, I get some, something done. My book, I didn't even open after I got it back from the publisher. Like I haven't even opened it. I yeah. mean, to show people things. Yeah. I, I mean, but you, I, but you know, you wrote it. You, yeah. And what you do it's it, just it, like this kind of like thing. Over. It's with my albums too. I don't listen to them after they're done really. Usually. Um, I, I have this thing that it feels like I, have to create and like once the creation's out to the world i let the world do their thing with it and i i myself don't feel it for an ego reason i don't feel it for any kind of spiritual reason at that point it's just like a must that mm -hmm. i've had to do it and i got it out it's kind of like we have to eat and breathe it's the same thing you know and i got i got that released out and it's done and now let the world do what they want with it. And I probably won't think about it again. <laughs> yeah. No, I <laughs> Until someone totally. like you asked me about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once you're out there and it's out there, you're like, okay, no, I do remember doing that thing. Right. But exactly. You, you I had to really had to recall some stuff. All of a sudden you're like, wait a second, actually. Yeah, I did do that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, this book I did write. It. Yeah, you're right. I did write that. Okay, cool. So it's kind of <laughs> one of those things, you know, you yeah. don't think about it every day. No, um, no, so. not at all. Well, I appreciate you taking time to come in and visit with me today. Um, I want to make sure that, it, it, like if people are interested in the book or they're interested in learning more about you, like what's a good way for them to, to find out about you, find out about your work? Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds kind of lame, but you can literally just Google my name, Slade Templeton. Um, it it kind of pulls up projects, films I've done, books I've done, um, my Facebook stuff. Um, I even got into like, this is a funny thing, but I, I even started into haunted miniatures for dollhouses, mm. for haunted dollhouses, uh, which took off too. <laughs> and like, I sold over 500 ghosts of these little LED ghosts. Um, as oh, a wow. little side they hobby. go into like dollhouses. Yeah, man. Oh, and wow. I, okay. I figured out a way to make them with printers to look like, uh, this goes back to the sculpture thing. Mm -hmm. Remember when my, I told you? Yeah, you were yeah. going to do music or musical sculpture. Yeah. So I kind of went full circle there and I started doing sculpture again. Um, so you'll see some of that stuff pop up too with miniatures. Okay. Um, I got really into haunted miniatures um, and, and got really known on TikTok and stuff for those. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, that's another facet of, of the horror worlds that I work in. Um, but yeah, you'll see Crying Vessel. Um, we got a three album deal with Cleopatra Records out of Los Angeles. They have like Iggy Pop, Danzig, uh -huh. um, a lot of the biggest acts I grew up listening to. Um, I That's why I was in LA in 2020. I went to, to fly out for meeting them uh, to sign a three album deal with Crying Vessel. Um, so we're on two of the three that just released called Before Life Was Death. Uh, so you can check that out on Spotify. Um, yeah, and you can see the films I'm involved with. I've done a lot of stuff on Netflix, things like this. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, Google the name, which sounds so stupid. I know, I know, but it's, <laughs> it, it, makes but it, it is like the easiest narcissist. way, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, we'll just Google me. Yeah, what kind of, yeah, what kind of ego is that? But <laughs> otherwise, I have to give you like 10 different links, which is ridiculous. Um, but you might see on the top of the Google, uh, SlateTumbleson.com. Okay. And from that, you can at least see the book, um, the miniature stuff a little bit. And then also, um, you can see all the music, Crying Vessel. Uh, and stuff I've been involved with with that. That's yeah. awesome. Well, thanks for taking a little bit of time and coming in here today. Thanks for coming back home. And thanks for having sharing me. Sharing your story, man. This is pretty cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, once you have it ready to go, I'll definitely make sure that everyone in Switzerland listens too. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. So, well, thank cool. you. Thank you. Right. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son, Mitchell Probst, wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode.
That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast in Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyinhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyinhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. A Salt City Sound production.